So tonight we're going to pick up where we left off in our study of Philippians. And as you can see on the screen, we are breaking into Philippians chapter 2. So uh, yeah, we're crossing that, crossing that threshold. <clears throat> we won't, we're not in chapter 1 forever, right? And this is an incredible, incredible chapter. So you can go ahead and, and turn there. Philippians 2. But before we dive in, it's been a little while, so let's take a, let's take a minute and get our bearings. If you remember, Paul is in prison in the capital city of the Roman Empire, in Rome itself. The conditions are rough. His life is hanging in the balance. He's awaiting a trial, and the verdict of that trial could go either way. It could end in his deliverance and release from prison, or it could end in his death. And when the Philippians heard about this imprisonment, they sent one of their leaders of the church to Rome, and they sent that leader uh, with a financial gift, pretty hefty gift, it looks like. And that gift was intended to help cover his needs, because if you were in prison that day, you had to have people helping you, or you would die. So this church, this Philippian church, was absolutely endeared to Paul. Paul had planted the church. Paul had suffered tremendously for that church. And so they were endeared to him, and it went both ways. Paul was endeared to them too, and we've seen that in the letter. But we've seen that not all was well in Philippi either. The Philippian church had begun to experience similar persecution as to what Paul was facing. They were tempted to be discouraged. They were tempted to to lose their joy. They were tempted to be afraid, just like you and I would be. And not only that, but there was a growing division in the church between these two important women that we'll find out about later in the letter, Yodia and Syntyche, chapter 4. There's a growing division between these women, and apparently people in the church had begun to take sides. So it was pretty significant, significant enough for Paul to, to mention them by name in this letter and tell them to uh, get along. And there was a lot of arguing apparently going on, a lot of bickering and grumbling. And the, this leader, Epaphroditus, had been, had been sent and he informed Paul about these circumstances. And that's what Paul's picking up his pen and, and trying to address in this letter. And so tonight, as we move into to chapter 2, Paul's going to dial in on the disunity. So as he sat there in prison, just kind of imagine this. He's sitting there in prison, and he's hearing this news. His circumstances are, are terrible anyway. And he hears this news, and, and nothing pains him more, we're going to find out, than hearing that his beloved Philippians were not in harmony with each other. And Paul knew that this lack of harmony, this lack of unity, this arguing and bickering, this fighting in the church, this could only mean one thing. It could only mean that a satanic spirit of pride had infected this assembly. Now, it's on the front end, right? It's not like Corinth stage yet, but it had infected this church. Somewhere along the way, get this, they had begun to think highly of themselves. They had latched on to their own agendas instead of Christ's agenda. Maybe one group 
you know, the, we'll call it the Yodia group. Maybe they, they sinned against the Syntyche group, we don't know. But both sides dug in. Perhaps they'd begun to resent and grow suspicious of each other. Whatever was going on, it was fueled by pride. And Paul knew that if this pride was not identified and repented of, if it wasn't replaced with humility, if it's not replaced by a unifying spirit, then the church is in danger. Paul knows that more relational damage will happen. The spirit will be grieved. The church won't flourish in the mission that Christ has called her to, and on and on it goes. And for us here tonight in Boundless, we've got to know that temptations toward disunity will always be present. Why? Because we're always tempted toward pride. The default setting of our old self is pride. I hope you know that. The default setting of your old self, the old you, what you're trying to come out of and put to death and put off and put on this new self, that old self is infected to the core by pride. But pride is blinding. So it's, it's difficult to see uh, in that sense. And, and the telltale sign is that you don't think you're proud, right? Uh, it's kind of ironic the way that works. So just as we're getting going in this text, just let me give you some indicators maybe that, that pride is lurking around. Pride will show up as a, as a preoccupation with yourself. It's a preoccupation with yourself. You're obsessed over yourself. And we often come into the church thinking about our own needs, thinking about our own desires. And we think things like, man, I really hope my friends are here tonight so I don't feel awkward. People who are often preoccupied with themselves and their desires are often, another manifestation, they're often easily offended. So think about them. It's all about me. And I'm easily offended because I think potentially highly of myself. How dare someone say something rude to me, right? I can't believe she said that to me tonight. That was so rude. Who does she think she is? Maybe if we don't say that out loud, maybe that's what's running through our minds over and over as we go home after that conversation. How dare this church not be more friendly? I feel so unwelcome. Balance is just so clicky. You know. And that might lead to another manifestation, a critical spirit. A critical spirit. This often leads to, to criticism, uh, judgmentalism. We're tempted to exclude those who are not like us, that we don't jive with or click with. We perceive her somehow kind of beneath us in, in a status of some kind. You know, I'm an upperclassman, you know, more mature than the riffraff, lowerclassman. Sorry, freshman. I've grown. I'm mature. I'm stable. You know, or you flock with the trendy crowd and you don't really like to flock with the non-trendy crowd, you know, or whatever you call them. I'm in honors versus not. So there's just all these sort of class. Oh, man, like most of you are in honors and you're laughing. <laughs> I just stepped on an air hose. 
there. <laughs> so, you know, there's all these ways that we kind of can classify ourselves and sort of identify, and, and, and this sort of critical spirit kind of pervades it all, this looking down our nose. Or maybe you're on the other end of that, and you feel like you never measure up. Maybe you're on the bottom end of the nose, and you're looking back up, up the nose, you know? And then maybe that's another manifestation of pride. So you're constantly comparing yourself against others to see how you size up. And maybe when you feel like you don't measure up, you feel like someone else is getting what you deserve, guess what happens? You're jealous. It's another manifestation of pride. You're tempted to envy those who have what you want or what you think you deserve. Or maybe self-pity, another manifestation of pride, because you don't have it. And you're just going to pity yourself for a little while because you don't have that thing that you, that you want and you're never going to get there. Or maybe, you know, you have a high view of yourself and that person is getting what you want and so you're going to go over to this group of people and you're going to start belittling that person. You're going to slander them, gossip about them, to tear them down a little bit so you can exalt yourself. Another manifestation of pride. Or how about that sort of subtle bragging that none of us do? Right? That, that subtle exaltation of ourselves in conversation to make people think more highly of us. Now, this might not be so subtle, but, you know. Ah, man, I'm sore today. Why are you sore? Oh, I just been working out, you know? He maxed out yesterday. It's 275, man. I just, whew. I know, it's a lot. It's a lot. You know, that subtle, that subtle brag and the way we can kind of work that in and the not-so-subtle social media posts, pictures. It's an obsession of self. How about you're talking to somebody and you really don't want to talk to them. And they're just talking and your mind is somewhere else. You're preoccupied. You're preoccupied listener. Because why? Because you're more important than they are. It doesn't matter what they have to say. You're just going to nod and just try to find the escape route. It's pride. Oblivious to the needs of others. Walk into a social setting, you're unaware of what's going on around you. You're unaware of what someone's needs are. Because why? Focused on yourself. Pride. So my point in that was not to just try to shame anybody or or step on any air hoses, you honors crowd. Um, But I want you to see that that pride is is insidious and and it leaks into everything. And pride is the reason that this church was in disunity, that the relationships were fractured. And it was a great, great threat. Underneath all of these things is is a spirit of pride, a spirit of self-importance, an inflated view of ourselves. And get this, all right? If you think that you're just coasting, if you think you're not tempted with pride very much, if you think, you're, if you think that this isn't really affecting you or that, or that you're not actively battling it in some way, it reveals you're probably overtaken with it. And it reveals that you're probably likely to be in some form or fashion already beginning to sow the seeds of disunity in the church. I've been there. So I'm not speaking kind of here down to you. I understand what this is like. I understand how if you don't deal with resentment in your heart, you can begin to 
to be tempted to slander and sow those seeds of division. And we have to be active in this pursuit, this cultivation of humility that we're going to look at tonight. And it's similar to, you know, you guys know I like to garden. And if you don't manage your garden, then the weeds just overtake it. If it's just kind of, I'm going to take a passive approach to gardening this year, then the weeds are just going to be all over it. So we've got to be, that's the way that, that's the way pride is. If we're not actively killing it, it'll be killing us. But Paul knows that for the church, there's a far more powerful spirit at work within us. Okay? And this spirit is actively countering the pride of the old man. And he's countering it with the humility, the humble mindset of Christ. We're going to learn about that tonight, but it's not automatic. We've got to pursue it. And that's exactly what Paul is going to call both the Philippians and us to cultivate tonight. Nothing thrills Paul's heart more than when the church is humble, more than when the church is loving and unified. So, Paul's going to motivate us toward this, and he's going to tell us how to pursue it in our passage tonight. So, if you would, just look with me. Let's read it, and then we'll, we'll get into it here. I'll make some comments as we go, as we read. So, Paul says, Philippians 2, verse 1, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And just for good measure, we'll throw in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Or ESV says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, but the, the Greek text is, which is also in Christ Jesus. So Paul's given us this mind, and he's calling us to cultivate the mindset of Christ. How he thinks. So that's the title of our message tonight. And you can see that he sort of starts these, starts this passage, let me give you some high-level observations here, with a bunch of these if clauses, right? If this, if this, if this. We'll talk about that. And that's all headed toward verse 2. If all that's true, Paul's argument, and it is, then, here's the punchline, here's the main point, then, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's the main idea. Paul wants his joy completed, we'll talk about that, by all of us being of the same mind, or having the same mindset. Maybe that'd be a better way of saying it. Having the same mindset. So he said, what is that mindset? What does that, what does that look like? He spells it out in the rest of the, of the rest of the verses, all the way from the end of chapter 2, or verse 2, all the way to the end of verse 4. So he's essentially motivating it on the front end, he's telling us what to do, and then he's telling us how to do it. And that's kind of how it, how it flows out. But the, and and he, then he identifies it down in verse 5 as this mindset is this mindset that Christ exemplifies. And then he launches into the example of Christ in the following verses. And we'll, t- we'll look at that next week. So Paul here is calling on us to cultivate the mindset of Christ and he tells us how to do it. And we can draw out at least three features of this mindset. Three features of the kind of mind 
that Paul wants us to adopt. This kind of mindset that he wants us to cultivate. And this dovetails really well with what we've been learning on Sunday mornings. This renewal of our minds, how it starts here, same thing. Paul's saying this this mindset we have to have, it has to start with how we think. With our vision of life, what we're pursuing, how we're thinking about it, and it's this mindset or or, or attitude that we should cultivate, and it's it's Christ's own attitude. And so let's look at some of these features. I'm just going to draw out three features and we'll hang all of our thoughts on these features. And this, the first feature of this mindset is that it remembers what we have received. It remembers, this mindset recalls, it remembers what we've received. It doesn't forget the gospel. It draws on it. In other words, this, this humble, self, self-sacrificing, other-centered mindset that comes from somewhere. And it doesn't generate from you and your old man, because your old man is just full of pride. It generates from your experience of the gospel. So Paul is saying you have to remember this. And that's how he starts. He says, so, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of this same mindset. So, in other words, it's a mindset that remembers what we've received. Paul knows that if we're growing proud and and argumentative, then we're evidencing that we're starting to forget what God has done for us, what we've graciously received from God. So, the first thing Paul does for us is that he reminds us of what we've received in Christ as a motivation for our humble mindset. Now, we'll, we'll work that out. just want to put that up to you up front. Now, he, he piles up for us here four, we could call it reminders, of what we've graciously received. You'll notice in this text there's lots of lists and uh, a lot of redundancy, right? And that's the point. Is it's, it's a powerful, he's saying one thing, essentially, and he's trying to just hammer it home. He piles up for here four reminders of what we've graciously received. And you might be wondering, why does Paul say it like that? Why does he say, if there's encouragement, etc.? Well, let me start by saying he's not trying to introduce doubt. He's not by saying, if there's encouragement, maybe there's not. That's not his point. He's, he's not wondering if there's any encouragement in Christ or any affection. No, it's, it's a way of speaking that assumes a positive answer. You know, I I think I said it like this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, of course, that's kind of the idea. So in English, maybe it's comparable to when we sort of ask leading questions. You know, like, maybe we could reframe it like this if we were taking it over in English. Is there any encouragement in Christ? And you would be like, well, yeah, duh, you know. How about any comfort from his love? Uh, Yeah, Paul. How about any participation in the Spirit? Do you have the Holy Spirit helping you? Uh, yeah. Well, how about any affection? Have you experienced any affection and sympathy from God in the Gospel? Yeah, Paul. Of course we have. What's, what are you getting at? Then get along. Right? That's kind of the idea. He's assuming that the answer is, yeah, of course we've experienced these things. 
And if these things are true, he says, then it doesn't follow. Your actions are not following. This division and strife and pride is antithetical to your experience of the gospel. So let's just look at some in detail what he's appealing to here. First, he reminds us of our union with Christ. Do I have this up? Yes. First, he reminds us of this union with Christ and the profound encouragement that we have received from that union. And by the way, these are going to function as, as good portals for your encouragement. <laughs> so if you're lacking some encouragement, here's some good, good wells to draw that encouragement from. Union with Christ. He calls it encouragement in Christ. To be in union with Jesus means that I am inseparably joined to Him. Even though I don't deserve anything from God, I get everything from God because I'm joined to Christ. That's union with Jesus. Christ earned my righteousness. Christ took my punishment. So that means I only receive all of the covenant blessings because I am connected to Him. He's my representative. You will never experience one ounce of God's wrath even though you deserve all of it. And you will only receive all of Christ's inheritance even though you deserve none of it. And that's all because of Him. It's because you are bound to Christ by faith. You're tethered to Him. You're in Him. That is astounding, and that is profoundly encouraging, isn't it? And a similar kind of encouragement comes from experiencing Christ's own love. That second, that second little phrase we see there. This comfort from love, he says. Paul knows that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the depths of Christ's love for us. Over in Ephesians, he says it surpasses knowledge. So it's, it's quite literally impossible for you to know the depths of his love for you. You strive for it, grow in it, but it's bottomless. And we feel unworthy of it because we are. But that doesn't stop him from loving us because his love is constant, it's consistent, it is unchanging, it is unwavering. And it emanates from Himself. It's self-generated love. It's not, it's not because you're worthy of it. It's in spite of you. It's not contingent on your worthiness to merit it. And He's saying there's comfort that comes from that. From His love. It emanates from Him. And He's, he's got us because He loves us. He's got us in His hands. We're endeared to Him forever even though we were once rebels, even though we often still are wayward children. And Paul says that's comfort. That's consolation. That's just so you can breathe. Because Christ has us. He loves us. And third, he reminds us that we've experienced or, or literally participated in God's own spirit. And this just means that God has graciously given us his own spirit, himself. The greatest and most powerful gift imaginable for humans. Okay? That's it. it is, it's the gift of the spirit. We didn't deserve the spirit. 
We were dead without the Spirit. We were unable to change without the Spirit. And God gave Him to us in our dead state to make us alive, to cleanse us, transform us. And His presence in our lives shows that we belong to the new creation. We participate in the Spirit. And finally, He calls our attention back to Christ's own deep affection for us. He says, if there's any affection in, and then He, and then he says, in any sympathy, I think is how the ESV translates that. Uh, yeah, if there's any affection in, in sympathy, they go together. And the word, the word sympathy is actually mercies in the plural. And I think Paul is talking about, he's in, in the affection and the mercies, he's talking about the attitude and the, and the emotions that Christ feels for us, the depths of it, and then the tangible acts of mercy that he has accomplished on our behalf, what we've received. So things like our justification, our resurrection from the dead spiritually, and all that he's given to us, these are mercies. Kind of in the Romans 12, 1 and 2 sense, by the mercies of God, you know, everything he's just described in Romans Present yourselves as a living sacrifice. So Paul is saying, if we zoom out and we just kind of grab all these phrases in our, in our arms here, what's his point? He's reminding us that we've experienced all of this in and through Christ, not because we ourselves earned it. In other words, God did not resent us. He didn't judge us when he could have. He acted for our best interest. Christ humbled himself and loved us when we were unlovely. And is that true, Paul's saying? You experienced any benefits from that? We're saying, yeah, we have. So, Paul will say, act like that toward each other. Right? Bend out what you have received. That's where he's going with this. You see, the more we understand and believe all that God has done for us, it will be reflected in our relationships. Maybe we could say it this way. The measure, the, the, what reveals how deeply we believe this is how our relationships look. The gospel humbles us profoundly. It tells us that we are much worse off than we think or we can even know. Our hearts are far blacker than we've ever dared to see. And yet, that God has done everything it takes to forgive us and restore us, and His love toward us is constant in Christ. It's better than we could have ever imagined. The Son of God absorbed the Father's wrath that was headed toward us and left blessing in its wake. And that means that if we're struggling with pride, if we're struggling with those manifestations of pride that I mentioned earlier, the first step is to take a hard look at the gospel. Humility is, is born from receiving what you don't deserve. It starts there. The gospel humbles us and it tenderizes us to forgive and to reconcile. So if you're thinking, I just can't forgive that person. I just can't reconcile with that. I can't, I'm not going to part with that pocket of pride. 
then we need to ask, how well do you understand the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? Because if you do, Christ through his spirit will tenderize you to begin bending that out toward others. So that's the first step. The, this mindset of Christ, it remembers what we've received. That's what Paul's saying. But that's not all. We also see that this mindset is a mindset of highest priority. So this isn't just some like marginal idea that Paul is suggesting. It's not like this would be a good idea if you if you were to do this um, when you get some time. This mindset, adopting this mindset, cultivating this mindset, should be our at the top of our to do list as our highest priority, kind of over all over all things. Now, you you might be wondering where if you're looking at, back at the text. Where, where are you getting that from? Like, does Paul actually say that? Well, I'm drawing this out from the phrase that Paul says, you know, if all these things are true, then notice what he says, verse 2, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. I thought about that a lot this week. Why did he say it that way? Paul could have just said, if all this is true, and it is, you know, all that we've received in Christ, then pursue unity. He could have just commanded us to pursue unity. And that would have been perfectly legitimate and true. He could have just jumped straight to his point, but he actually tells us to do something else. The command is that we complete his joy by being like-minded, or better translated, Complete my joy, namely, be like-minded. Probably be the better, better way to translate that. So he links the completion of his joy with the church adopting the same mindset. So that means then that he wants the church to see that his joy is in some sense tethered to their obedience. It just gets more and more interesting, doesn't it? In other words, Paul's joy is not all that it could be because of their lack of obedience in this area. That's the idea of completing it. And he wants them to know that what will complete his joy, what will make his heart truly sore, is for them to be like-minded in humility. Now again, it it just keeps getting more and more interesting to me as I think about this, because if we think back to Paul's scenario, what he said before in this letter, it's, it's astounding that he makes the statement. Because Paul's like, he almost gives the impression like his joy is like unassailable, you know? Because first, we would naturally think that, okay, Paul's in prison, and his joy would be tethered to him getting out of prison. Fair? If you're in prison, you're about to die, that would be probably the first thing I would be thinking about. What's going to happen to me? But that's not on Paul's mind. Paul didn't care whether he lived or died. Nowhere does it say in the letter that Paul's joy is tethered to his imprisonment. What his joy is affected by, at least partially, is their disobedience. 
It's diminished by the church's division and underlying proud attitude. That tells me then that this is one of Paul's greatest priorities for the church. Since his joy is in some sense bound up in this. It doesn't mean it's, it's completely bound up. In it. Paul could still rejoice if the church went AWOL. But he's saying it completes it in some way. It maximizes it. For the church to have Christ's own mind, a mind that's humble, this joy, it's joy completing for Paul. It's his highest priority for us. Maybe we could say it that way. And this is crucial for each one of us to see because the pursuit of humility and unity should be at the top of our priority list too. It's easy to ignore the fractured relationship. Right? It's easy to pretend that you were not hurt by someone in the church when you really were. It's easy to just sweep that under the rug and grow resentful of that person more and more every time you see them because you've harbored that offense and you've not forgiven them. But if we realize that this unity is at the top of Paul's list, that this kind of humble mindset is, is, is at the top, that it's the thrill of his heart, we're going to be motivated to, to pursue it and overcome those awkward scenarios <laughs> that inevitably transpire when we have to reconcile. But it's not just the thrill of a dead apostle. Okay? So Paul's dead and gone. We're not the Philippians. It's helpful, instructive to us that it's, it should be a high priority. But it's not just his thrill. It's the thrill of every single one of your shepherds here at Timberlake. We rejoice when we see you humble yourselves and seek unity. We rejoice when we see you put your agenda aside to serve someone else. We rejoice when we see you forgive and love another person. When we see you partner together for the sake of the gospel. There's nothing then on the flip side that brings more grief to our heart than seeing disunity, division, pride, and then the broken relationships that inevitably follow. I can remember, I was thinking about back kind of my pastoral history years ago, but I can remember coming home one day about five years ago and sitting in my driveway weeping because someone had refused to reconcile with another person in this church and they were leaving the church and we were so close. And it, it broke my heart. It, and, and I couldn't even put words on why it was so upsetting to me, but Paul's helping me here because this is a lot at stake in our relationships with each other. It broke my heart because we'd worked so hard toward that unity and it seemed that they threw in the towel right at the last minute. So, ask yourself, is this mindset that Paul describes in this passage and the pursuit of it, is that one of your highest priorities? Is that something you're willing to inconvenience yourself and, and, and make yourself awkward to pursue? It's not just for Paul and for us as your shepherds today, but, but, but this highest priority is for Christ himself. He died to make us one. Let that sink in. Christ died. He laid his life down to make us one, one church, one body. He created the unity, the one new man. 
And He wants us to maintain it. Ephesians 4. He intends for every one of us to prioritize this pursuit of it in our daily lives. So you're probably thinking right now, okay, Clay, uh, I, get, I get the point. I see this is important. Um, I'm, I'm with you. I'm motivated toward this. But what does this mindset look like? How do I pursue it? Well, those are great questions, and that's where Paul goes in the rest of our passage. And we'll frame up this, uh, the rest of these verses uh, kind of underneath a third feature of this mindset. And we'll say it like this. It, this mindset must be practically pursued. So, in other words, it's not sort of automatic because Christ created it, then we're good. So we've been seeing on Sundays in the growth series, it's it's active. We We have to pursue this and the Spirit will help us. So Paul goes on at the the end of verse 2 all the way down to sort of describe this mindset and what it looks like in the tangible, kind of how we approach it. He says, you know, obviously the goal is being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves, each of you looking not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So you notice I kind of read that as one long sentence, because it is. Um... When you're reading this from an English translation, it sounds like they're all commands, but really there's one command, and the rest of the verbs tell us how it should be pursued. So I'm going to, this is Thursday night Bible study, right? So I'm going to give you a little diagram, okay? All right, there's a main command. Complete my joy, and I'm I'm giving you a translation too. So it's Clay Mackey translation, just overlook it if it sounds weird. Okay, complete my joy, that is, have the same mindset. There's your command, main idea. Oh, watch out. <laughs> All right, now these are participles, okay? And it's, this is how it's worked out, okay, initially. There's three that go together there by having the same love, by being same-souled, literally, by thinking the one thing. So if you don't want to write all this down, you can just take a picture of it, or you can ask me, and I'll send it to you. Um, then there's, there's two more. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, another two clauses that go together, by doing nothing from selfish ambition or pride, but, you see the but there, but by regarding one another in humility as more important than yourselves. So that, those two clauses go together. And then the last two clauses go together by not looking out for your own interests, but also by looking out for the interests of each other. So my point there is I'm showing you grammatically, this is what Paul's doing. He's wanting, you to, he's wanting us to have the same mindset to pursue it, and then all of these underlined verbs there are showing us how we go about pursuing them. So that's helpful, right? Because Paul doesn't want to leave us hanging. He doesn't want to leave us in the dark. Now, as you probably noticed, if I'll just leave this up for a second, the first three of these underlines here, the first blue bracket, they have to do with our unity. And you can kind of you can kind of hear that in the in the translation, having the same love. That's in the Greek text. That same love, and then by being same souled, it's one word, but it's got a prefix. And then by by thinking the one thing, you know, it's just there's one same. 
all that language kind of goes together, and I think that's, that's for a purpose. I think Paul wants us to understand all these phrases together. He's calling us to have the same love, the same soul, and the same mind or vision. So, I'm going to group those together and say we pursue, we practically pursue this by cultivating camaraderie. By cultivating camaraderie. Now, probably you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> what is camaraderie, and how do you spell it? Camaraderie has the idea of brotherhood or friendship that's united by a common cause. Okay? It's like a friendship, like a brotherhood, a group of people that are tight, and they're united around a common cause. That's camaraderie. And it's literally the perfect word to, to grab all of these ideas. And it's, it's used primarily of, of soldiers in a battle. They share camaraderie. Why? Because they look out for each other and they have the same cause, right? They're fighting, they're fighting a war and they've got to have each other's back and, and be pursuing this together. And that's exactly what Paul's telling us to cultivate in these three phrases, this, this spirit of camaraderie. He tells us to have the same love, meaning we should love each other with the same love that was shown to us. Okay, that's the idea of the same love. The same love that God showed us, we're to love, we're to love others with. Earlier, he asked if there was any comfort that we experienced from God's radical, self-giving love toward us when we least deserved it, and there is. So since that's the case, we should show that same love to each other. So you and me need to be cultivating this kind of Warmth, this kind of familial love with each other, toward each other. And this is a love that overlooks offenses, a love that's willing to forgive, a love that's patient and kind, a love that thinks the best, all those things in 1 Corinthians 13. And that's because that's how God's loved us. And that's sort of component number one of this camaraderie. It's the same love. And next he says, we're to be what the ESV says is of one accord, or like I translated it, to be the same sold. Same sold. It's a compound word that has the idea of unity, but it's, it's more than that. It's like a deep, unified friendship. Right? Same sold. You think about uh, t- to share the same soul as someone means you're in a deep relationship. We're like, the, 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 the deepest thing about them is what I share with them. We're one soul. We're the same soul. It's this deep, unified Friendship. So Paul is calling us here to cultivate this friendship with each other, these relation, this relationship that's based on Christ and our standing in Him. And finally, he says we should be of one mind, or more literally, thinking the one thing. So what's he saying? He's saying we should have the same ultimate goal, the same ultimate vision and pursuit which is Christ's glory in and through the church. It's Christ's mission, the advancement of the gospel, the maturity of the church. That should be pulsating in all of our hearts because we're all different. We're all got different majors, different jobs, different aspirations, different stations in life. But there's one thing that's pulsating, and it's that Christ is exalted, the gospel goes forward, the church is built up, we're using our gifts, and we're all pulling together in that same, in the one thing, Paul says. 
This is our common mission that all our eyes need to be focused on. My point here is that all three of these involve cultivating camaraderie, cultivating a deep friendship around the common cause of the gospel. Satan wants us suspecting each other. He wants us distrusting each other so that we get off that mission. So imagine the soldiers in the same battalion getting confused and thinking their comrades are the enemy, and they start shooting at each other. That's what disunity does in the church. Instead, Paul wants us to cultivate this camaraderie, to share the same love, share the same soul, share the same mission. And if our eyes are on Christ and His mission, then guess what they're not on? They're not on ourselves. And that's what Paul says next. We pursue this mindset by rejecting all motives of self-importance. We reject all of the the motivations of the self, selfishness, self-exaltation. That's what he says here in the first part of verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul says here we've got to rid ourselves of all forms of this selfish ambition and conceit. So the selfish ambition Paul condemns is an ambition that's for selfish ends. It's that craving for preeminence. That craving for status. That craving for personal glory that's not rightly ours. And when you don't get that, and others do, it takes that form of envy and jealousy and rivalry that we talked about earlier. It might look like complaining, being critical, arguing, flattering people to get what you want. But at the end of the day, that selfish ambition, the point is it's all about us. It flies in the face of the self-esteem literature here. Paul is saying, you don't need to esteem yourself more. The problem is not that you have a low self-esteem, it's actually that you have a high self-esteem. And notice that Paul says that we should do nothing from that motive. It's like, whoa! That's like a serious command right there. Nothing. There's no wiggle room. Nothing from this self-centered motive. That's the standard. So this means that at a minimum, we need to be expert confessors before the Lord, don't we? Confessors of sin and these motives. Because I don't know about you, but my heart is full of these selfish ambitions. This motive is constantly popping up in my heart. And I notice it by the bad fruit. Right? I'll often think I deserve something, and when I don't get it, I'll get, I start resenting my situation, or I start complaining about it, I start grumbling in my heart. And so those are the warning signs. That's the bad fruit. In that moment, I've got an inflated and false view of myself. And I need to be aware of it. I need to identify it and reject it outright as pride. That's a huge way that we practically pursue this mindset, by rejecting all motives of self-importance. But there's another and more positive element to pursuing this mindset than just rejecting the proud and selfish impulse. And that's by, Paul says, considering others as more significant. As more significant than you. In verse 3, He says, 
do nothing from selfish ambition, but do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So, the way to fight back against your elated view of yourself is by making a deliberate decision to think of others, especially other church members, as more important than you are. I love that. Because it's so straightforward. (laughs) It just gets right to the point. It's a deliberate decision to say, you're more important than me. No nuance. Paul's just like, you got to think this way. And notice, it's not a feeling, but it's a deliberate decision. Because trust me, your, your feelings are going to scream at you that you're more important. But the choice is to regard others or to consider others, it's a thinking word, to consider others as more significant. It's a deliberate choice that comes from a new perspective and a more realistic and humble perspective, by the way. Uh, Side note, do you know what humility is? What comes to your mind when you think of that? Is it kind of the guy that's like whipping himself, you know, just like, oh, I'm terrible, terrible, you know, just, that's not humility. Humility is seeing yourself accurately. It's seeing yourself as you truly are before God. That's all it is. Or we might say, just knowing your place. It's like it's staying in your lane. That's humility. Pride is a farce. Pride is an overinflated view that's not in accordance with reality. But humility is. And Paul's saying here that when we choose to consider others as more significant, more important, then we're far closer to reality than when we think that we're super important. And that is freeing. Now, again, Paul's not nuancing it, but I will, okay? Just in case we're tempted to go overboard here. Paul is not creating a hierarchy in the church. He's not telling me to think that I'm somehow less valuable in like some qualitative sense than you. We're all equally undeserving. (laughs) He is saying that I should think in terms of rank or status. That I should make a deliberate choice and think of others as occupying a higher status than me and thus I should think more about how to honor them than demand to be honored by them. Now this is revolutionary for us and it certainly was revolutionary for the Philippians. So think about this. I mean, we 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 don't. I mean, we have some distinctions in our society, but in in a place like Philippi, where they would have had the Roman citizenship was like preeminent, and then there's Roman citizens which are a third, maybe a fourth of the population, and then everybody else is a non-citizen, and then at the bottom of that totem pole you've got the slaves. And there were slaves and citizens in this church. And he's calling on the entire church, including those of Roman citizenship, 
to think of themselves as less in rank than the slave that they're sitting across from. And to serve that slave. This gets at Paul's idea of, of out, if, you, if you want to compete in the church, compete in showing honor. Paul says in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. Now this is staggering stuff, and, 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 and we need this to sink in. So, let's do a little thought experiment. So just picture somebody in Boundless right now, kind of in your mind, maybe look over, you know, and ask yourself, how would I treat this person if I genuinely thought that they were more important than me? Just think about that for a second. How would I treat this person if I genuinely thought they were more significant than me? If they had some higher rank than I have? What would that look like? It's been a great filter for me this week to overlay onto my relationships that question. What would this look like with my wife if I thought she was more important than me? What would this look like with my kids if I thought my kids were more important, they were of higher rank than me? What would this look like with you guys if I thought you were more important? And it was so humbling and convicting because of how little I think about that. And the default setting is that, well, I'm, I'm important here. I've, 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 I've got you know, to get my things done. I've got to stick to a schedule. I've got to, you know. But what, what would this look like if I, start, if, I, if I thought about people sincerely as more important than me and as in a higher rank? Well, we don't have to go very far because Paul actually spells out what it would look like in verse 4 with another pair um, of clauses here. It wouldn't, like, it wouldn't look like obsessing over yourself. Um, that's what he says. Uh, we, we practically pursue this by not obsessing over ourselves. He says this in, in the first part of verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Now, I think that the ESV waters that down a little bit. Again, not like a, a heavy criticism there, but just, I just don't think it has the teeth of what Paul's saying. Here's the wooden translation, okay? Each one of you, not looking out, not obsessing over the things of yourselves, meaning your own interests. So I think his point is that if we really considered others as more significant, then we would not navel gaze. We wouldn't be self-obsessed. We wouldn't have tunnel vision and fixate on our own desires our own wants, our own needs. Because this verb, this verb that says look out for, this verb can have the idea of a, of a close examination. Uh, it, it can mean like you're giving serious thought, serious consideration to something. You're exerting continuous effort in acquiring information about something. Sounds like obsessive to me, you know. You're, you're obsessing over something. You're fixated on it. I don't think what Paul is saying here, or what Paul means here, is that we shouldn't look out for our own needs in any way or provide for ourselves. I don't think that's his point at all. 
Because Paul would that, that would contradict what Paul says in other places in Scripture. Paul tells us very explicitly to work hard, to support ourselves, take care of ourselves in that sense. He wants us to be people of conviction, to even have opinions. He's also not saying we should just give others this sort of blank check to completely take advantage of us, because that's not wise love. And that's not best for that person. They just can continue running over people all day. That's not good for them. Paul's saying here, all that he's saying here, is that we should not obsess over ourselves. That we, and, and he says we won't if we think others are more important than we are. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know uh, that we all kind of trend toward this self-obsession, right? Uh, just in the very obvious ways. So I'll, I'll skip over some of those. But I do want to draw your attention to some subtle ways, even in a church setting, that this sort of self-obsession self kind of comes out. You know, we often want the best for ourselves when it comes to the church. You might obsess over getting the best discipler, right? Who disciples you in just the way you want them to. Or you might want this person for that quality and that person for another quality and, and essentially kind of curate your ideal discipling, you know, for yourself. Or you might want to serve in ways that are most gratifying to you. Or you might self-pity if you don't get to serve in the way that you want to. And you might envy the person that does get to serve in the way you So I'm just saying, this self-obsession, we, we can carry it with us in these very subtle ways. We think we're pursuing these good things, but it's really just all about us. And that, that self-obsession has never really been challenged. And living that kind of life is exhausting. It's, it's ultimately faithless. Because God knows what you need. He knows what you need way better than you know what you need. And he knows it even before you ask him. So, take a deep breath and just trust him. Get your eyes off yourself and guess where you need to put your eyes? On the needs of others. Get your mind on the needs of others. If you want to obsess over something, Paul says, obsess over the needs of others. That's the last way that this is practically cultivated. Consider the needs of others. Paul says here in the end of verse 4, have let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So Paul says if you want to obsess over something, he wants us to fixate on the needs of others. The same verb is just carried over. It's implied in the same clause. You know, just look carefully at it. Paul wants us to be others-oriented. He wants us to be aware of the needs. He wants us to anticipate the needs of our fellow church members. And this implies, then, that we need to be on the lookout for those needs. Right? Kind of where this passage lands. We need to come into the church, come into our relationships with each other, uh, just anticipating what the needs might be. We, went, we, could, we could ask questions like, what would most bless this person in this circumstance? Or, if I were in their shoes, what would be helpful in this moment? Now, this obviously looks like asking good questions, listening to what others say, not talking over people, helping them think through their solutions and their scenarios of their lives. It looks like being available to help people. You know all the practical stuff there. 
We could preach messages on like all these clauses, but I won't do that tonight. The point, Paul's point, is that to be anticipating the needs of others. And if you're going to obsess, fixate on, on their needs. So, that's what this mindset looks like. Paul spells us out when all these you know, kind of A through E clauses there you know, in, our, in our text. But his main point is he wants us to be cultivating this mindset that Christ exhibits. And this, the idea here is, you know, think, think about the effect of this. If I'm thinking about you as more important than me, and you're thinking about me as more important than you, guess what's going to happen? A ton of fruit, right? A ton of growth, a ton of good in this world, because this is the vision of the new humanity. This is what's happening in the Godhead as we speak. This kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing, preferential love between the members of the Trinity, and we are invited into this oneness, this unity. This is what we will be in the new creation, that we get to sort of retrofit into the old. And so this is a this this vision of I know it sounds hard this self denial this this preferring the needs of others what about me this is is the very mindset that our Lord Jesus has even now and Paul's going to go on because he knows this is tough he knows this fights against every fiber of the old the old man Paul's going to go on to root this in Christ and he's going to show us exactly what Jesus did how he condescended. And he, he's in a class all by himself. We're talking about humbling ourselves to the point of reality, right? Where we really are. We're talking about Jesus humbling himself to where he, he really was up here and he came down and humbled himself in, in the form of a servant. So we're going to look at all that next time. And is this hard? Yeah. Yeah. It is hard. It might cost you your life, like it cost Christ. But is it worth it? That's the question. Not is it hard, but is it worth it? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. This is the only path toward a life that truly matters, a life that's going to count, a life that's going to be remembered, a life that's going to echo into eternity. This is the only path toward the fullness of Christ's own joy. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. This is the only path toward the furtherance of Christ's own mission in the world. As we become a community that's unified, that truly does love each other, that are willing to put up with each other, and forgive each other, and work through, and reconcile as we cultivate this humility. And I just want to end this way. I want to just give you one big affirmation, really, in this. Because as I was thinking through this week, I was heavily convicted. (laughs) Um, But you guys are a group that are consistently pursuing this kind of unity, this kind of love for each other. 
I don't know, we're all in different places and different stages of Christian life, but the core, as I look across the, the span of this group, this stands out to me as your pastor. And this kind of love draws people in. People come in and they, I hear it all the time. They say, yeah, they asked me to my, into their home. They, they're praying with each other after this. Like, they were talking through, people are helping each other like in the scriptures and it wasn't judgmental or people are honest and transparent. Like that, that is the consistent theme I hear. doesn't mean I, hear, I don't hear other things, but that's the consistent theme. Now, we can always love better, for sure. I mean, you hit a text like this when it says no selfish ambition, and you're not, how are you not just filleted, right? Um, but my point here is that, that Christ has, is and has been unifying us, and I am encouraged. I'm encouraged by how you pursue this, and I'm instructed. I was thinking of specific examples, um, both in my own home, <laughs> through my wife, and in, in this ministry. of how you, I watch you guys anticipate needs, and, and serve. So I don't want you to end uh, in, a, in a downer. I want you to end encouraged because of what Christ has been uh, accomplishing. Amen? All right, why don't we pray, and, uh, and then we will eat some food. Father, we are grateful for how clear your word is. We are painfully aware of how short we fall, and yet... Uh, joyfully aware of the fruit that your Spirit's producing in us. Any little awareness of pride uh, is a revelation from your, from your Spirit through your Word into our hearts to see the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That did not come from us. So we praise you for that. We praise you for any um, selflessness that's been exhibited because that's all evidence of this Spirit that you've granted to us um, it's evidence that we belong to you, and it's evidence that we're going to inhabit the new earth. And we are just thankful. So we pray that you would um, use this text to motivate us to serve each other better. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.